Our mission, we are about helping people find and follow Jesus. We want more people to know Christ as their Savior and Lord and then live their life for Him. We are going to continue in our series through the New Testament book of Acts. And we've been calling this series the Action of the Church because that is what Acts is about. It is about what the church was doing after Jesus ascended back to the right hand of the Father. We are going to be in Acts 23 this morning. It would be helpful for you to open a Bible to Acts 23. We're going to look at the entire chapter this morning. And I'm calling it this sermon, The Providence of God. Let me ask you a question. Can you look back on the circumstances of your life uh, maybe there's a time that you thought was just very normal, very ordinary, nothing you know, special necessarily about that on, on the surface level. But now that you're all the way through it, you look back on your life and you're like, that was God the whole, whole time. You know, for me, I can look at my occupation. I used to be a pharmaceutical rep, and then I went to hospital supply sales, and that was in California. And what it took to get me from there to here as a pastor in Wyoming, it's called the providence of God. Um, God was working. He was working every little detail out so that I would come to this place that, I, that I'm in. Well, today we're in the, the third chapter of the book of Acts, and cha- Acts 23 is not a chapter that we typically study. This is not a, a book that we usually go to for some deep theological truth, um, but this is the, it, it seems to us, at the surface level as we're reading it, this just seems to be the account of some things that were happening to the Apostle Paul. But if that's the way we read this, then we miss what God is truly trying to teach us in this chapter and what God is trying to teach us is the providence of God. In the Old Testament, there's an entire book dedicated to this this idea. It's called the book of Esther. In the book of Esther, there's really no doctrine that is explained to us. In fact, the very name of God isn't even mentioned in in the book of Esther. But in the book of Esther, what we're watching is that normal events unfold in the world, and yet behind the scenes, God is the one that was orchestrating all to happen so it would happen exactly the way it did. You know, often we, we pray for a miracle, and that's, that's, that's what ha- when God moves in, in supernatural ways. For example, when Jesus walked on water, you know, there's this thing called hydrogen bonding. You like that? Between the hydrogen oxygen of, of different molecules, there is something called hydrogen bonding. And it's not strong enough to support the weight of a human being. So when Jesus did that, that is called a miracle. Also, when, when Jesus fed the multitudes, food does just not peer out of thin air. And so for Jesus to feed the multitudes of people, that is called the supernatural event or a miracle. And so often we pray in our life, we're we're praying, God, would you do this miracle for me? But what we really need to be watchful for is for the providence of God. And sometimes we don't see the providence of God. Sometimes it's it's not apparent to us, but God is working. God is orchestrating everything in our lives, and it's totally unseen. I mean, how many times has some event happened in our lives, and now we know it's not a normal event? That God was working through natural events, but behind the scenes it was the supernatural that was happening. For example, also in Job. Job was a man that the Bible says was a righteous man in the eyes of God. And yet behind the scenes, God was having a conversation with Satan, and Job knew nothing about it. 
But the events have happened in Job's life that would change the life of Job forever. I can think of events that have happened in my life, and these are things that I would never choose for myself. Okay, But was Satan and God having a conversation about me behind the scene? Probably not. I don't know for sure. But what happened in my life has brought me to where I am. And that is true for me. And the same is true for you. God, at this point in the book of Acts, has been weaving the events for the apostle Paul. And he's been doing it for this reason. So that the gospel will go from one man that knows Jesus to people who don't know Christ. And did you know God still works that way today? God is the one behind the, behind the scenes to orchestrate all the events of this world to, to happen the way that they've been happening so that more people will come to know him. And there's sometimes people will say, well, well, Pastor John, if that's true, why doesn't God just show up on the scene and tell us he's God? Here's what I say to that. He did. God did show up on the scene. His name is Jesus the Gospels are when, when God took on human flesh and came to this earth. And he came as, for a rescue mission for sinners. And that's all of us. You know, a number of years ago, there was a, a church planning organization. And the name of that church planning organization was called Acts 29. And the name of that organization got its name because we're going to find out here soon, a couple weeks. Acts ends in, in chapter 28. And so what that organization was saying, by choosing that name, they were saying, we're going to pick up the baton, and we're going to keep doing what the church and act was doing. Well, the apostle Paul, he understood what his role in the spread of the gospel was. Here's Paul's role. He would go to people who don't know Jesus. He would open his mouth. He would preach the gospel, and God would do the saving. So, so Paul has been planting churches all over the Mediterranean Sea. And at this time, he's back in Jerusalem, really for the last time. And he's standing before the Sanhedrin. These are men that probably some of them are the same men that murdered Jesus. And, and Paul is on trial for teaching his doctrine. Here is what Paul is teaching to these murderers. He's teaching that the Gentiles have the same access to God as the Jews. And they have access to God, the same access, through the same man, the Messiah, that these men murdered. And look what Paul says, Acts 23, verse 1. And looking intently at the council, that's a Sanhedrin, Paul says, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up until this day. And the high priest, Ananias, commanded those who stood by him to strike him in the mouth. Well, that escalated rather quickly, didn't it? Paul gets one sentence out of his... Already somebody's punching him in the mouth. And this is the high priest that orders this. A very corrupt, very wicked man. And his name is Ananias. Now, don't get him confused with Annas. Annas is the former high priest in the gospel who is the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the current high priest. And that, they, they were the guys in charge during the gospels. This is a different guy. Also, don't get this guy confused with Ananias, the guy that lied to the Holy Spirit and God smoked him in Acts chapter 5. These are a lot of different guys with similar or the same sounding names. Well, Ananias is the high priest in Jerusalem. Uh, Ananias came on the scene. He got the title of high priest in AD 47. And he's going to continue to be the high priest right up until the first Jewish revolt. The, the first Jewish revolt happened in AD 66. 
And, and the Jews were, were revolting against Rome, and that they were, continued this revolt until AD 70. And if you know what happened in AD 70, the Romans came in and utterly leveled Jerusalem. They destroyed Jerusalem. They leveled the temple. In fact, they, they, they lit fires inside the temple that were so hot it caused the, the stones to, to basically crumble. And that's how they were able to topple this massive structure that was built. But check this out. The Romans didn't kill Ananias. The Jews did. This man was killed by his own people because he's a wicked, wicked man. He, he was very corrupt. Uh, there was a Jewish historian by the name of Josephus. He wrote that Anna, what Ananias used to do is he would take the tithes that were, that were designated for the other priest and he would pocket them for himself. And if anybody had an issue with him stealing from the church, what he did is he either had people beat up or he murdered people to cover his own tracks. And that happened until the Jewish people couldn't take anymore and they're the ones that killed him. And so to this guy, Paul says, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience. Now, when Paul said that, he's not saying that he's sinless. Because if we were to turn to Romans chapter 7, we would read about Paul's own personal struggle with sin. But what Paul is saying here, he's saying, I have lived my life as closely as humanly possible to how God would have me live my life. Keep reading, look in verse 3. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed walls. Are you sitting in judgment to me according to the law, yet contrary to the law you order me to be struck? But if we were look back in verse 1, Paul addresses the, this man as, as brothers. And, and that's not the typical way that you address the Sanhedrin. Typically, if you're addressing the Sanhedrin, you would call, say, elders, that's how normal most people address the Sanhedrin. But Paul doesn't do that. And he doesn't do that because he's a Pharisee. So Paul is speaking to his peers and he says, you whitewashed walls. So what I'll say to that is name calling is biblical. Paul did it. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. The Sanhedrin is accusing Paul of breaking the law. And so they punch him in the mouth, which is against the law. They're a bunch of hypocrites. Look in verse number four. Those who stood by said, Would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of the people. Remember there was a day when Jesus said, If somebody slaps you in the face, turn and give them your other cheek as well. And Jesus got slapped. And Jesus didn't retaliate. But this isn't Jesus. This is Paul. Paul has an old nature. Jesus does not have an old nature. You know, this is one reason why we know that this book is true, because we see the humanness in, in these, these men and their, their actions and their, and their deeds. And I need to address a very sensitive topic here, because, you know, often in my sermons, I, I mention how, you know, there's, there's verses that we cover, and I'll say something along the lines of, well, you know, the prosperity gospel preachers will skip over a verse like that, when, especially if we're talking about Christian suffering. Well, here's what I'm going to say. Verse 5 is a verse that most Southern Baptist preachers would like to skip over. I would like to skip over verse 5, but I'm de doing you a disservice as your pastor if I skip over verse 5. Because in verse 5, Paul is speaking to a murderer. He's speaking to a thief. And he says, he says, oh, you're the high priest? And he says, you know, you shouldn't speak to a high priest like that. And, and Paul says, I didn't know. 
I, well, excuse me, Paul didn't say I didn't know. He says, it's not my fault that you're high priest. That's not what, what Paul says. What Paul says is he says we should respect the offices that are over us. And then he quotes Exodus 22, verse 28, which tells us that we're supposed to do that. Now, if Paul can do that for a very, very high corrupt, a very, very corrupt high priest, what the, the high priest, his job is supposed to be pointing people to God, and yet this high priest is dragging people away from God and stealing their money. And if Paul can say that about this man, then as hard as it is, we're supposed to do the same. And let me be honest, sometimes there's times I'm preaching to myself up here. This, this sermon is as much for me as it is you. And on Sunday mornings, I, on purpose, I try not to get political. Because I believe Sunday mornings are a time we're supposed to come together, we're to open God's word, and it's to equip us to go into this lost and dying world and tell them about Jesus. And we're not supposed to be talking about politics. But when the scripture that we're covering directly intersects the world today, i got to say something. And here's what I'm going to say. I don't like this text either. I know there's some of you that are like, I'm not, I, I don't like this text, but this is for me as much as it's for you. I greatly disagree what I see going on in our government today. But as long as it doesn't go against the Bible, we, we're commanded by God to go along with it. Again, I'm being transparent here. I believe that our government is becoming more anti-Bible, anti-God, anti-everything that God has said was good, and embracing everything that God said was bad at breakneck speed. And this is a hard one, but as long as it doesn't go against the Bible, we're commanded by God to respect the offices that are over us. And again, this is just as hard for me as it is for you. But this is what Paul does. He recognizes that when he's speaking to this office that, 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 that is supposed to be over him in authority, and he admits it, and he apologizes immediately. So this is a time when Paul gets it right. As believers, it's hard, but we have to strive hard to imitate Paul. Again, this sermon's for me just as much as it is for you. But here we're about to read the very best part of, the apostle, of Acts 23. Excuse me. Paul is standing. He's standing from these corrupt, corrupt men. He just got punched in the mouth. He recognizes he's speaking to this guy that ordered his, his beating. And he knows he's not going to get a fair trial. And this is what he does. He employs wisdom. Look in verse 6 of Acts 23. It says, now when Paul had perceived that that one part were Sadducees and the other part Pharisees, he cried out to the council, brothers, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee, and with respect to the hope of the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial. At that moment, Paul just split the room in half because all the Pharisees are going, yeah, he's one of us. And all the Sadducees are going, I hate this guy even more now. Verse 7 And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was split. And here here Luke's given us some theology here of what the Sadducees believe. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angels, nor spirits, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Okay, so the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they're the two of the the three main um, theological parties, if you will, in, in Israel. In fact, they're the only two in, in Jerusalem. There's a third party called the Essenes. Now, the Essenes were a little desert nomad group, and they lived down near the Dead Sea. 
And these are guys, they don't work and play well with others for good reason. But anyways, in Jerusalem, the Pharisees and the Sadducees are the two main groups. Now, all these groups, they didn't come apart, didn't get created in the Old Testament. You can read your Old Testament forwards and backwards. You're never going to see these three names. But you read Matthew, and all of a sudden, they're there. These groups came, came about during the intertestamental period. Man, I'm getting tongue-tied. Intertestamental period. Because when Malachi ends and Matthew begins, there's a 400-year gap of time. I know often we, we finish Malachi and we're like, and the next day, Matthew. No, 400 years. Well, during that time, that's when these three groups came together. During that time, the, the Jews were taken into captivity and the temple in Jerusalem was utterly destroyed. Well, if the temple was destroyed, for the Jews, that means no animal sacrifice. If there is no animal sacrifice, what are you going to do? Because you can't sacrifice animals in your home. It's not like you can take a little lamb, take it in your living room, and slit its neck. That is a big, big no-no to the Jews. So what they did is they resorted to studying um, the law in these little groups. And they did this for decades. They studied these little groups, and they called them synagogues. Well, eventually, they got back into the land, and then these three groups developed. It's kind of like the first denominational split. That's where, where it happened. The, the Essenes were one, and the Pharisees were another. The word Pharisee, it means separated one. And these guys are essentially, this is what they taught. Okay, we got sent into captivity because we weren't following the law. So this is what we're going to do. We're really, really going to follow the law. We're going to follow the law to a T because we don't want ever God to ever do that again. And the third group is called the Sadducees. I call these guys the liberals. If the Sadducees are the liberal, well, then Pharisees are the conservatives. And we need to know a little something about them. The Sadducees, they did not believe in miracles. Pharisees did. The Sadducees didn't believe in a resurrection. The Pharisees did. The Sadducees, they don't believe in angels or spirits or anything like that. And the Pharisees did. The Sadducees, they didn't hold to what we refer to as the Old Testament. They only hold, held to the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's the, the writings of Moses. They're, think, they're saying that's from God. Where the, the Pharisees, they held to the, the whole thing. And so when Paul says, I'm a Pharisee, all the Pharisees say, yes. And all the Sadducees are like, I hate this guy even more now. And, and it, for, for years and years, the Pharisees and the Sadducees had been each other's throats, and here Paul just kind of stirs the pot, if you will. And if you remember, there's a guy named Claudius Lysias. He's the guy in charge. He just wants to get some answers to who this Apostle Paul guy is in the first place. Look what happens next in verse 9. It says, Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisee party stood up and contended sharply, we find nothing wrong with this guy. Really, you just punched him in the mouth. And it says, what if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? See how they're trying to slide some of their, their theology in there and kind of undermine the Pharisees? Well, the Pharisees, they're siding with Paul because really they're at war with the Sadducees. That's why they're doing this. Because Paul just said, hey, remember that guy Jesus that you murdered? Well, he came back from the dead. He resurrected from the dead, and, and he appeared to me. You know what that means? That means there is a resurrection. 
And that means there is life after death. So Paul is confirming what the, what the Pharisees believe, at least part of it, and, and, and discounting what the, what the Sadducees held to. And so keep reading. Look in verse 10. It says, And when the d- dissension became violent. So these guys are like losing their mind. They're wanting to tear Paul limb from limb. It says the, the tribune, that's Claudius Lysias, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away among them by force and bring him to the barracks. The following night, notice that's not the same night, the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, take courage, for you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. Paul just started riot number three. Paul's really good at getting under the Jewish leader's skin, if you will. And, and, and so Claudius Lysias has to come down, has to grab Paul and essentially throw him in jail before he's torn limb from limb. And it's not that night. It's the second night that something happens. So the first night, think about this. Paul's all alone. And whenever Paul's alone, he always seems to get very depressed. When he has his friends, he's, he's very strong and confident. But when he gets by himself, he is depressed. And at this moment, he's all alone. You know, if we were to back up do you, in, the, in the book of Acts, do you remember there's a man named Agabus that said, Hey, Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. There's some guys there that are going to kill you if you go to Jerusalem. And then there's his buddies in Tyre that said, Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. Do you think the words of, of these men are haunting him at this time? I have to believe that's what Paul's thinking. Because, again, he's by himself. He's all alone. And, and who shows up? It's the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus appears to Paul and says, Take courage, for you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. And this is what I picture. I picture Paul just laying on the floor, maybe crying a little bit, and King Jesus shows up. If you ever need a a pick-me-up speech, that's the one to get. It's a word from Jesus, and you're like, hey, everything's going to be okay. We need to know it might not end okay in the immediate future, but the end of ends, like the very end, you know when Jesus shows up, it's going to be okay. And this is what I hope you see more than anything else. The providence of God. Because all the beatings... It was by the providence of God. All the lies told about Paul, all the imprisonments, they're not an accident. God allowed it all. And and everything would happen exactly the way it did. It was was God's doing. And he did this so Paul would go to Jerusalem. He would preach the gospel to the Jewish leaders. Bad stuff happened, but the gospel was preached. And now, at this moment, we know that Paul's going to Rome. Five times in the book of Acts, Jesus appears to the Apostle Paul. And every single time that Jesus appears to Paul, it's during a time of crisis. First time, Acts chapter 9, Paul's on his way to murder Christians. And Jesus shows up and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Okay, That that was a, a time of crisis, right? Second time, Acts chapter 16. Paul wants to go to Asia, and the Holy Spirit says no, and he doesn't really know where to go. And then he gets a dream of a man from Macedonia saying, hey, Paul, come over here and help us. And then Paul tells us he knows that dream was from Jesus. And so he goes to Macedonia. Third time, Acts chapter 18, 
Paul's a pastor in Corinth, and Corinth was a difficult place to be a pastor. Things are not going right. It seems like nothing is going the way it should, and all of a sudden Jesus shows up. He says, don't stop preaching, Paul. You keep preaching, you keep teaching, you keep sharing the gospel. Don't you stop. And Jesus says, because I have many people in this town that I want to say, save, and you're the one that's going to preach the message. The fourth time that Jesus appears to Paul is right here, Acts 23. The fifth time is going to be in Acts 27. Lord's willing, we're going to see this in a few weeks. If you know it, Paul's on a boat. There's a big storm. Everybody thinks they're going to die, and Jesus shows up. He says, hey, Paul, no one's going to die. Be of good cheer. You're all going to make it. And then Paul goes and relays that message. He says, do what I say because the Lord Jesus appeared to me. We're all going to make it. So all the times that Jesus appears to Paul, it's a a time of great crisis. It's a time when Paul was discouraged. And every single time, Jesus picks Paul back up. But I want you to think about this for a minute. Because this this really, we need to go kind of deeper in this. Where is Paul at this moment? At this moment, Paul's in jail. He's in jail in Jerusalem, in the Antonio Fortress. And this happens to be the same exact jail that Peter was in. Do you remember Peter was in jail in in Acts 12? He was in prison and he got jailbroke by an angel. If you're with us, I called it Mission Impossible Angel. No music, no music this time. But anyways, if you remember that, the the angel came in and the door swung open and the chains fell off. In fact, he he had to go up and like kick Peter and say, Peter, wake up. And he walked outside. It wasn't until he got outside that he realized he, he's not dreaming. And, and this is the same exact jail. The reason I'm pointing this to you is because sometimes you get Mission Impossible, Angel. You get out of jail. And sometimes you don't. Sometimes the Lord delivers. And sometimes he doesn't. And there's some people, I'm, I'm saying this because they're like, well, if Paul was in the will of God, well, then he would have got out of prison. Not true. It was the will of God that Paul would stay in prison. In fact, Paul stays in prison for the rest of his life, and he dies in jail. But here's one thing that's super cool about the Apostle Paul, and it's something that every single one of us needs to take notice of. And we need to do our very best to imitate Paul. Paul never once said, I'm a prisoner of Rome. He never said that. He never said, I'm in jail because of the Jews. No. Paul's the one that said, because I'm in chains, I'm free. That's what Paul said. Paul said, I'm a slave to Christ. Paul knew that he was in chains. He was put there by the government, but the reason why was for the furtherance of the gospel. Paul never said that the the chains inhibited the gospel. Paul said that the, the chains he was in, it helped further the gospel. And that's something that every single one of us, self included, we need to recognize. And when we're in situations like that, we need to look for the opportunity for the gospel to preach just like the Apostle Paul did. Look in Acts 23, beginning in verse 12. It says, When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink until they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. And they went to the chief priest... And to the elders and said, we are strictly bound ourselves to an oath. They taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, 
along with the council, give notice to the tribune to give him down to you so that you're going to determine his, his case more exactly. Hey, let's look at Paul just one more time. Bring him out of jail so we can just talk to him one last time. And we are ready to kill him before he comes. Verse 16, don't miss this. Now the son of Paul's sister heard their ambush, so he went, entered the barracks, and told Paul. Lot of, lots going on here. So here are 40 guys, and they came together. This is what we're going to do. We're going to go on a hunger strike until we killed Paul, until we murdered Paul. Here's the deal. I read the end of the book. Okay? Um, spoiler alert, they don't kill Paul. But how many of those guys do you think kept their oath not to eat until they killed Paul? I'm betting zero of them. That's what I'm thinking. And so there's somebody that hears there's an ambush coming for Paul. And did you catch who it was? It was his nephew. And we're told that Paul has a sister. I wonder what's her name. What's the name of the nephew? We don't know. You know, but it's kind of weird is here is the nephew of the Apostle Paul. He's not only able to hear that there is a, a plot to kill his uncle, but he's able to get in the jail to tell Uncle Paul that there's 40 guys that want to kill him. Talk about the providence of God, right? God weaved it all out to happen exactly the way it did. So all we know about Paul and his family is what we're told in the Bible. We know that, that Paul's dad was a Pharisee because Paul just told us that he is the son of a Pharisee. And we know that Paul was, was formerly Saul of Tarsus because he's from Tarsus and Cilicia. But that's all we know about him. We really don't know anything about else about his family. But his family's from Tarsus. Here's a question. Did his family move to Jerusalem? Uh, was, was his sister's son studying to be a Pharisee like his grandpa and his uncle Paul? Was this nephew studying under the great Gamel like, like uncle Paul did? Did the sister and the nephew, did they get saved? Are they Christians? I don't know. I don't have that answer for you. In fact, we will maybe never know this side of heaven because the Bible doesn't tell us. Keep reading. Verse, let's go back to 16 again. It says, Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, so he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, Claudius Lysias. Take him to him, for he has something to tell him. So a lot of going on there. But you need to really think, but is it kind of weird? It just sounds weird for a second because Paul's locked up in prison and he calls a centurion. This is a Roman soldier that's in charge of a hundred men and Paul asks him to do something. Well, the truth is that isn't weird because if you're a Roman citizen, you have certain Roman rights. And here's some things that if you're a Roman, one, you cannot be accused of a, of a, of a capital crime unless there is lots and lots of witnesses against you. Two, you can't be scourged or flogged. We saw that earlier in the book of Acts. They are about to scourge Paul until he says, I'm a Roman. That's illegal. And whoever scourges a Roman citizen, you could die for that. Uh, three, you can appeal your case directly to, to, the, to Caesar. And Paul's going to do that here in Acts very soon. And fourth thing you do, can do, you can summon a Roman official to do certain tasks. And that's exactly what Paul does right here. Keep reading verse 18. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul, the prisoner, called me and asked me to bring this young man to you, for he has something to say to you. 
And the tribune took him by the hand. And going aside, he asked him privately, What is it that you have to tell me? And he said, The Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down out to the council tomorrow. And though they were, they're going to inquire something more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them. For they have more than 40 men that are laying in ambush who are bound themselves by an oath to neither eat nor drink until they've killed him. And now they are ready and waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, tell no one what you have informed me of these things. The tribune, we, we, I keep talking about him. His name is Claudius Lysias, Lysias and he is the head honcho in charge of, of Jerusalem at this time. And he has the boy. And he knows that this boy is Paul's nephew. And, and Claudius needs to have some information about Paul. Who is Paul? What is he doing? Why do these guys want to kill him? Well, now he's got his nephew. Clearly, this boy's going to know something about Paul. And so he, he pulls him aside and says, hey, tell me what you know. And he says, hey, there's 40 guys that are going to lie in wait and, and wait to ambush and kill my Uncle Paul. And with this information, look what he does. Verse 23, then he called two of the centurions and said, get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen and go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of night, that's 9 p.m. And also mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. So what does Claudius do? He doesn't get one centurion, he gets two centurions. And with two centurions come 200 soldiers. And he doesn't stop there. He gets 70 horsemen and 200 guys with javelin. He's coming heavy, right? He, he's gonna ha- he also he puts Paul on a horse so he could maneuver quicker. And they leave late at night. He's, basically what he's doing, he's going to be ready when this ambush comes. Claudius Lysias is saying, I'm getting Paul to, to Felix and I'm going to do it alive. Well, Jerusalem is out in the middle of the desert, and Caesarea is by the sea, and they're about 65 miles apart. Felix is the governor at this time. I think most of us were very familiar with Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate was the governor during the time of Jesus. Well, now Pilate is gone, and Felix is in charge. Okay? And what does Claudius do? He gets 470 soldiers to guard little old Apostle Paul. Here's what we know about Paul. He's a Jewish man, about 60 years old at this time. I picture a small, he's probably not very athletic, kind of hunchbacked and old, maybe walks slow. And he's, he's got 470 soldiers to guard him. Don't you think that's kind of overkill? Not really. If you know the, the, the climate of Judea, this is not overkill because 2,000 years ago, it was a very volatile place. In fact, just a few years from where this takes place, there's going to be a revolt in AD 66. And in AD 70, it's going to add very, very badly for the Jewish people. You see, the Romans knew that the Jews were very difficult to govern because they were over the top for their, their way of life. They really, really didn't like to be under anyone's thumb. In fact, they were willing to die for their way of life. And if that meant that 40 of them had to, had to die to try to kill Paul, they're willing to do this. And so that's why Claudius Lysias is coming so heavy. If you kind of think I'm overstating this, I've got some homework for you. I'm not going to talk about it, but Google Masada, M-A-S-A-D-A, 
Look that one up and read what, hap- what the Jewish people did. I'll leave that for your own study. But the Jewish people don't mess around when it comes to stuff like this. And Claudius Lysias knew it. Let's read the letter that Claudius Lysias writes to Governor Felix. It begins in verse 25. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysias, to his excellency, the Governor Felix, greetings. This man, is Paul, this man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them. When I came upon them with soldiers and rescued him. What a good guy, right? Rescuing the Apostle Paul. <laughs> Having learned that he was a Roman citizen. Yeah, you learned it because you're about to whip him and, and then you, you pulled it off last second. And desiring to know the charge of which he was accusing him. I brought him down to their council, and I found that he was being um, accused of questioning their law, but charged him with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against this man, I sent him at once, ordering his accusers to also, also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instruction, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And on the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horses go on with him. And when he had come to Caesarea and delivering the letter to the governor, he presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what the providence was he was from. And when he learned he, when he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. So, so Luke lets us know that they, they stop in Antipatris. Well, Antipatris is the halfway point between um, Caesarea and Jerusalem. So they get to halfway point, they, they wait, and they, they probably take a little nap, and they get back up at it. And then they get Paul to Caesarea, and he's put in Herod's Praetorium. Herod's Praetorium, this is a palace that was built by Herod the Great, and it's really nice. Okay, I've been there. I've seen what it looked like back in that day. And again, it's pretty nice. But at the same time, Paul is still in jail. He's been in worse places, but he's still in jail. And he's going to stand trial in Caesarea. This is going to be Paul's third trial in two years. And he's a prisoner. He's in chains. And the truth is, he's going to stay in chains until he's dead. He is going to go to Rome. He's going to be there two years. And eventually, Paul will stand before Nero. Then he'll be taken out on a robe just outside of Rome, and there he will be decapitated, and he will die. So I want to land this plane, if you will, and I feel like I want to offer some words of encouragement for some of you. Because Jesus stood with Paul as he's, he's in prison, he says, cheer up, Paul. And I think the Lord Jesus, he would stand with you, and he would say, cheer up. Jesus would encourage some of us here today and see, they would say, take heart. And as your pastor, I want you to cast all your cares on him because he cares for you. He's our rock. He's our defense. And as your pastor, I don't know all of your stories, but I know many of your stories and some of the things you're struggling with. And I would pray that the Lord Jesus would show up to you and say, I'm here for you. I love you. I'll never forsake you. But we need to know that sometimes Jesus gets us out of a situation. Sometimes Jesus rescues us from those, those terrible situations, and the truth is sometimes he doesn't. But we need to know it's all by the providence of God. God will work it out in truly amazing ways, and the end of ends for our good and for his glory. 
But no matter what, we need to know that God is here for us. So I want to close this with three questions. I'm going to have these questions up on the board. Here's question number one. Uh, I want you to look back on your life. Can you see the province of God working to get you to where you are now? What was it? What, what, what do you think about? Think about all the twists and turns that happened in your life, that, that crazy event that happened some 10, 20 years ago, and now here you are now. Can you see the hand of God to get you to where you are now? Here's the second question. Question number two. Do you understand that God might not spare you from the trials of life, but will see you through it? I need you to know that our God is the great I am. God is not the great maybe. He's not the great, man, I really hope so. No, that's not God. God is the great I am. You know what that means? He's a present tense God. He's here for us now, and it's dark and it's horrible. Man, this world looks like it's about to blow up in a flame. But God is here for us. Right here, right now, and he's not against us. As bad as this looks, sometimes he's still here for us. And here's the third thing, third question. Question number three, if God allowed you to, to all that to happen to you, what do you think he wants to do through all of that with you now? When you look at the province of God, the twists and turns, sometimes the horrible situations, what does God want to do with you now? And that's a question I can't answer for you. That's above my pay scale. But I need each one of you to seek out God and what he has for you. Now, as your pastor, I can give you some insight, some advice. But when it all comes down, that's something you need to determine for yourself. But in the end of ends, we need to live for a creator God because he not only created us, but he came for us. And he died for us so that we could be with him for all eternity. And if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, I would beg you to do that now. Because here's the truth. The Bible says that we're all sinners. Every single one of us already stand condemned. It's not like one day we're going to be condemned. No, we're already condemned. We're all dead men and women walking. That's why Jesus came. Because we have this sin debt that we're incapable of paying. That's why God took on human flesh. And he came and he went to the cross. And he did it for sinners. That's you and me. And he died. The Bible says that he gave himself. Nobody took Jesus Jesus gave himself. He was buried in a rich man's tomb on the third day he rose again. Why? Because we're sinners. The Bible says that, but yet while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. It's not like we get our act all cleaned up and then Jesus saves us. No, he came and died while we're still wretched sinners. And the Bible says, for whoever calls in the name of the Lord, they will be saved. It's not that you can hope you can be saved. Maybe, no. It's a promise. It's a statement of fact. You will be saved. So if you've never called on Jesus to save you, I ask you to do that now. You must recognize that you're a sinner and turn from your sin and trust in Jesus. Will your life be just perfect? In one sense, it will. But we still have to go through this trials of life. There's still awful things that happen to believers but a life lived for Jesus is a life that we're meant to live. If you never called on him, do it as you sit there right here, right now. To say, dear God, I am a sinner. And you love me so much. Even when I was the most wicked thing, you still loved me then. And you came and you died for what I have done. 
I want to place my faith in Jesus and Jesus alone. Save me from my sins. And I pray this in your holy, precious name. Amen.